oftentimes do, but I also want to pray uh, for the families that have adopted, are fostering, that are involved in, in those things. Maybe some of you have even been adopted, and we don't even know that about your story. I want to pray for you this morning. And uh, it's such a wonderful picture, adoption is, of the gospel, because we've all actually been adopted. Many of us don't realize that those of us who trusted Jesus as our Savior have been adopted into God's family. And so I'm just going to pray uh, for that picture of the gospel this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our families that uh, are actively involved in caring for orphans. As you tell us to care for the widows and the orphans, I pray we wouldn't forget the widows too in that. As we talk about Orphan Sunday today, God, that you just give us eyes to see needs. And like Matt mentioned in his testimony, these need, special needs and then orphans in general are just such vulnerable people. I pray for those that are involved with foster care, those that are involved with adoption. I have no doubt that the enemy is attacking their families incredibly, and I pray that you put a shield of protection around them. And I pray for those who've been adopted into a family that was not their biological family. I pray that you just give them even greater appreciation for what your son Jesus did, that you, we are all fatherless, we're all separated from you because of our sin, and that you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins so that we could be adopted into your family, that we could in Ephesians 1 experience every spiritual blessing, that we could be sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you for the gospel, and I thank you for those who put the gospel on display. I pray if you want to move in any of our hearts to come alongside these families that have adopted or are fostering, I pray you'd put that in our, our hearts, and maybe in creative ways, maybe cleaning their house or... Uh, caring for their other kids or doing something, God, I pray that you would, would show that uh, to us today. And I pray as we open up the scriptures that your spirit would speak. We don't want to play religion. Um, we don't want to do man-made stuff. God, will you, will you do something supernatural? Whatever that might be today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to get right after it today. Mark chapter 10. If you have a copy of the scripture, I challenge you. I hope you bring one on a regular basis. If you don't, we give them away at the back. Just go and grab one. Mark chapter 10. We're going to start reading in verse 13 today. Mark chapter 10. As you're turning there, let me just ask you this one question. If there was one thing you could have in your life that would make your life better, what would it be? Mark chapter 10, verse 13. Go ahead and get there. Don't just stop and look at me when I say that. But if there were one thing in your life... You could add to your life, put in your life, there's something lacking in your life that would make your life better. What would it be? And I bet you just looking out, there's probably hundreds of different answers. What would it be? And I would challenge you, once you find your passage, write that down. And now some of you aren't going to write anything down. Some of you are note takers, go ahead and write it down. I'm going to ask you to turn it in. It's between you and God, but I'm going to go back to it during the message. And some of you, you put it on your phone, your tablet. Some of you, no matter what I say, you're not going to write it down. So at least lodge it in your mind what the answer is. If you could, if there's one thing you could have in your life, to make your life better, improve your life, there's something your life is lacking, what is it? Today we're going to talk about the life that lacks one thing, and we're in Mark chapter 10, I'm going to start reading verse 13. If you haven't been with us, uh, Mark, the whole first, first part of the book is about who is Jesus, who is this Jesus? And it climaxes in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus looks at his disciples, his 12 closest friends, his 12 closest followers, he says, who do you say that I am? There's a, all these other people say stuff, but what about you? And then Peter, who's the spokesperson for the 12 closest guys, says, you're the Christ. He gets it right. They're wrong so many times. I want to point out when he gets it right. He gets it right. Jesus is the Christ. But what does that mean? And what does it mean to us? If we want to follow him, the people that call themselves Christians or followers of Jesus, what does that even look like? And that's what Mark chapter 8, verse 31, all the way to Mark chapter 10, verse 52, which we're going to come to on Thanksgiving Day or the Thanksgiving weekend. And after that, we're going to do a Christmas series. You're all invited. But what we're talking about in this section, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, through Mark chapter 10 and verse 52, is all about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And there's a simple concept I hope you get through this series. If you don't get anything else, there's no such thing as a follower who doesn't follow. 
which actually is a radical concept for the American church where there's so many people that think going to church makes them a Christian or because they learned something in Sunday school or they prayed a prayer or had a warm, fuzzy feeling or whatever thing that it is that's some cultural deal that you can name the name of Christ but then live exactly like everybody else and not have your life changed that you could be a follower of Jesus and Jesus has no category for that. So what we're looking at is basic Christianity. This is like 101. This is not the advanced level. These aren't like varsity Christians that he's talking to. He says, if anyone, anybody ever wants to follow me, here's what you got to do. Deny yourself, take up your cross, then come follow me. And then what this whole section is about is what that looks like in different contexts. What does it look like to deny yourself? What does it look like to take up your cross? What does it look like in, in your ambitions, in your career, in your goals and all that? And what Jesus does, he goes after our ambitions and he says, ambition is wonderful. It's God-given, but he crushes our selfish ambition. He says, you want to be great? You got to be last and the servant of all. And he takes a child who's powerless. You got to be like these kids. So you, you, you want... You, you think that you're following me? You think that you're in relationship with me? You're dealing with your sin? Because if, if you got sin, cut off your hand. Gouge out your eye. He gives these teachings that's like, well, I'll, I'm more into the American version of Christianity. That's kind of extreme. <laughs> uh, that's bad news for you. And last week we talked about what does it look like in the context of our marriage? I mean, the week before we talked about we live for the fame of Jesus' name, said our lives are not about us, but then you realize our, our marriage isn't even about us. Our marriage is for the sake of ministry. And some of this teaching is like, wow, this is tough stuff. I sure hope that Jesus lets up this week. <laughs> Let's read it together and see what happens. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have them touch them, and he was going to bless them. But disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Is very angry. He said to them, the disciples, let the little children come to me and do not hinder. Don't be a barrier. Don't block them. We'll come back to that. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And this wasn't planned out like a year ago that we were going to land on this verse on Orphan Sunday, but I think it's significant that you look at this passage of scripture and you see Jesus' love for children. And he says this to his disciples who are they're blocking these kids. Like, don't bother. You don't, he's got all these people coming to him. I don't know what their motives are, but it's like, keep these kids back. And Jesus said, no, don't, don't hinder these kids from getting to me. I wonder what he'd say to us on Orphan Sunday. I wonder if he'd say, help. Let's help these kids get to Jesus. Connect them to Jesus for life change, maybe. <laughs> it just came to me out of nowhere. <laughs> but then get verse 15. This applies to everybody. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. There's, this isn't like open for a discussion, debate. Maybe there's some back door. There's a, something in the fine print. Anybody who won't enter like one of these little kids is never going to have eternal life. Never going to enter the kingdom of God. Never be saved. Those words are all synonymous in this passage. So what does that mean? What are the little kids like? We saw a little Rosie up here pulling on Matt's jacket as he was, you know, they're cute. So you got to be really cute to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's not what it means. Some kids are belligerent. That's not what it means. The picture of children that we see in the scriptures, they're powerless and they're completely dependent. No one gets eternal life that doesn't acknowledge that they can't possibly get eternal life on their own that's not completely dependent upon God. And then what happens after this is that Jesus took the children in his arms, very caring, like a father, put his hands on them, and he blessed them. And then verse 17, 
as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him. Maybe he heard this teaching of what was happening with these kids, and he saw this and thought, maybe this guy, maybe he knows, because this guy's desperate. Look what happens. He runs up to him. He falls on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But what we're going to see as we read, I'm going to read through verse 22 here in a moment. This guy's the exact opposite picture of the children we just looked at in verses 13 through 16. And look at it. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. And he gives the the answer that any rabbi would have given at this time. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud, which is a version of do not cover it. Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. (laughs) Seems like he really believes that actually too. But Jesus looked at him and loved him. Hmm. One thing you lack, that's a significant statement when we find out how much this guy has. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. Some people say this is the saddest verse in the Bible. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The only person we see in the gospels who falls at the feet of Jesus and leaves worse off than when he started. And think about what happens here. You got this guy and this story is actually told in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 19, if you want to read it on your own, and also in Luke, in Luke chapter 18, for those of you who are going to study this on your own or maybe before your small group, and then it's here in Mark chapter 10. And if you look at each one of the accounts, you see different details are given. And Matthew tells us this guy was young, and Mark doesn't mention that. And Luke tells us that he's a ruler. We don't know what he's a ruler of. We don't know if he's a ruler in the synagogue. Maybe he was an elder. Maybe he's on the Sanhedrin. Perhaps he's a political ruler. We don't know. But he's a ruler. He's got position, he's got power, he's got influence. All of them tell us that he's wealthy. He's got affluence. And he's lacking something. One thing you lack. Now, this is the guy, that, and some of you know this person, some of you are this person, that if, from the outward appearance, he's religious. I mean, he, didn't, he said, I kept the law. I don't murder, I don't steal, I'm not coveting, I'm not doing any of those things. Since I was a boy, he's probably, he probably tithes. He says, you lack something. This is the kind of person that when you look at their life, you think, they've got to, if I just had a life like that, if I just had that family, if I just had that job, if I just had that much money, if I just had that position, if I could just, I mean, he's got something about his religion, he's got to figure it out, and it looks like on the outside he's got it all together. But he, he wonders when he's alone with himself, maybe with God, is there something missing There's something wrong. I wonder what he would have said if Jesus asked the question that I asked you at the beginning of this message. What's the one thing you lack? What's the one thing, if you had it, then your life would be better? I wonder what he would have written down on his piece of paper. Or maybe he was rebellious and he just put it in his head. Oh, maybe it's the same as what you wrote. Maybe not. I don't know what he would write down. But he lacks something and he knows something's missing. And it doesn't say it in the passage, but I imagine when Jesus gets to the point where he says, there's one thing you lack in his heart, he's thinking, yes, like he's screwed. What is it? He says when he asks the question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to accomplish? What do I need to achieve? What do I need to do different? Is it because of my family? Do I need a different job, Jesus? Do I need a little bit more money? What is the thing? What do I need to do? And Jesus then tells him to go give. And the point today, that it might take a minute to, to grasp what I'm saying here, is that the life that lacks one thing, the, the life that's failing to have the one thing, must remove something. See, if, if your life is lacking the one thing. There's something missing, something. It's going to require you to remove something. 
Now, I don't know what the something's going to be for you. Hopefully, God will reveal that to you as we're going through this passage. But filling the life that lacks one thing will require you to remove something, which seems counterintuitive. You think, I bet most people, as you thought about, what is it, if, I, if there's one thing that would make my life better, it's adding something. It's not usually getting rid of something. But, but here's the deal. Oftentimes, when there's something that we want, there's a barrier between us getting that thing. And so we, we see this often. If you have kids, you've probably seen this. I've said to my wife before, my kids will ask to watch a show or something. And I'll say, how is the, my denial of their opportunity to watch a show so devastating they lose all strength in their legs and they just, like they're just on the ground, flailing around. It's awful. It's like, man, it's just like one show. But I guess that's because I have the power in that situation. The other day I was up in my office. Uh, we one of the bedrooms I, I use as an office. And was, my daughter came in, a third daughter, Janie. Chalks and says, Dad, can we watch a show? We're just got home from school. We're tired out, blah, blah, blah. She's going through the whole spiel of why it should happen. I didn't even say no. I just said, let's wait till your mom gets home. At that moment, she buckles over at the waist, whack, and her face smacks right on my desk, right there. Like, as it happened, I'm looking like, did that just happen? And she looks up, and she's like holding your face. And I, it was just one of those moments where I totally lack compassion. I go, that wasn't a good idea, was it? And she's it wasn't, but it was so, dev- I didn't even say no, but I was a barrier to her getting what she wanted. Now, here's the deal. We can make fun of kids and doing that. We do it as adults, too. Case in point, I don't know if you noticed, but there was an election this week, and some people didn't like the results, and so then there's burning flags, and, acting, and then all the people that like the results are like, those people are idiots. Now, let me remind you that President Trump said, if I, if I win, everything will be fine. If I lose, I'm contesting the results. We all do it. If we don't get what we want, we get upset because there's a barrier. Here's what I want you to be aware of as we jump into this passage today, is that sometimes the barrier is the very thing we think is going to bring the blessing. The thing that might be stopping you from having what's missing in your life might be the very thing you wrote down on your paper when I asked you that question. This guy probably has no clue that it's his money that's actually stopping him from experiencing the one thing that he lacks. Let me say a comment about that too. A lot of people, we come to a passage of scripture like this, will think, well, I'm not rich. I'm not like that guy. Because here's the reality. All of us probably in this room know somebody who has more money than us, and we think that person, now that's rich. Doesn't matter where you're at on the spectrum. It's just all relative in the numbers. If you make $20,000 a year, somebody makes $40,000 a year, they're like, that person's really rich. Somebody makes 40. It's like the guy who makes 60, 70, 80, you keep making the numbers. If you've got a car and it's a Toyota to sell, you're like, the guy with a Lexus, he's rich. And the guy with the Lexus is like, no, it's the Mercedes SUV. Now that guy's rich. And the guy with the three bedroom house is the person with the four bedroom house. Four bedroom house is the person with two houses. He's got a lake house. Whatever it is, we think that's rich. And so we always tell ourselves, I'm not rich. Let me tell you, biblically speaking, what rich is. Rich is that you have more than you need. Aha, Scott, I am not rich because I need a, and you fill in the blank with some infomercial product or whatever it is. I need a new bike. I need a new car. I need a new. Biblically speaking, uh, need is if you have a shirt in your drawer or in your closet at home, you're rich. The one that you're not currently wearing. I, I can't see everybody, but I think everybody has a shirt on today. If you've got one in addition to that one, Biblically, you're rich. If you've got more food than your next meal, whatever you're going to eat for lunch today, like you've got a pantry, you've got a refrigerator, you've got cabinets, whatever, the dorm room, you've got one of those little fridges, whatever, you're rich. And then what we see in the scripture is the sins of wealth are very deceptive. Greed and pride and self-reliance. And 
So let me just ask you, just keep an open mind, like you're, you're sinning in our culture if you don't, right? Like just keep an open mind that maybe, maybe you have more than the guy in this passage. Maybe his issue is your issue. Just maybe, or maybe it's something different. But imagine what it was like to be this guy. He's desperate. We see that in verse 17. And how do you see that in verse 17? There's several things we just read over in verse 17 that are culturally significant. He comes running to Jesus. Now, Jesus does this teaching. Anybody's going to have eternal life. Anybody's going to enter the kingdom of God. They've got to be like one of these little kids, powerless and dependent. Here's this guy. He's got position. He's got power. He's got influence. He's got affluence. He's young. He's got what everybody else is looking at and thinking, I wish I had that guy's life. But he knows something's missing. And so he runs to Jesus. Why is that significant? That's significant because Middle Eastern men in this time did not run. It was considered shameful and even embarrassing. Because in order to run, you had to take your robe, which men and women wore. You had to take your robe, wrap it up, and you'd see his legs. Oh, no. Either really muscular legs or chicken legs. We don't know. But he's running, and he doesn't even care. He's run- and then he falls at the feet of Jesus, which is a posture of humility. We see it in other people that have position, like Jairus in Mark chapter 5, when his daughter's dying. See, it takes a, a level of desperation to get to this point. And he falls on his knees before Jesus. And he says, good teacher, which we just read past because we say that lots of things are good. It's a good day. We had a, the Cubs won the World Series. That's a good thing for the Cubs. What are the Rembrandts, they're nice to look at. That's a good painting. There's all kinds of whatever it is. It's good. Lots of good. You look good today. Everything's good. But Jews would never call a teacher good because goodness was reserved for God. This is extravagant and extreme language. And Jesus knows that. But it's like he's wondering, does this guy realize what he's saying? He says, you call me good. God alone is good. Do you, do you think I'm God? But we don't get an answer, and he probably doesn't. But then Jesus gives the answer that would be expected from a rabbi. Keep the commandments. And then he quotes from the Ten Commandments. But it's interesting, he skips the first four, and he only quotes the last six. Scholars talk about that as the first table and the second table because they're different in uh, not just what is said, each individual statement, but in the theme of them. The first four commandments are all about our vertical, our relationship with God. Don't put any other God before you. You, you, How you use his name is really important. You hear these commandments that are about us and God. And then the last six are all about our relationships with each other. Don't murder. So that's why you get love God, love your neighbor. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. All these things that have to do with how we relate with each other because what we find out in the Bible is how we relate with each other actually reveals our relationship with God. How can you say you love God when you don't love your brother? And so Jesus is challenging him with, do you love your neighbor? And then his response. All these have kept since, this is the last phrase that gets me. Since I was a boy. He's probably referring to his bar mitzvah age when he was 13. And I was a 13-year-old boy. You might not know me at all, but I'm going to promise you that is not the point in my life where I think I stopped sinning. (laughs) And some of you have 13-year-old boys. (laughs) Can you even imagine this statement coming out of a a grown man's mouth? I've never, since since I, I, that's, yeah, since I've been 13, I've been good on all that stuff. Never dishonored my mom. (laughs) Moms, what do you think about that? And then I think about who he's talking to, Jesus. Like, Jesus knows everything. He's omnipotent. He can read our minds. He knows the hairs on our heads, every thought we've had. He knows everything we've ever done. 
And some of you have grown up with a legalistic background. Have you ever heard this before? That on Judgment Day, they're going to pull out like oh, a big box of VHS tapes because they have no technology in heaven. There's going to be like all oh, these VHS tapes and this huge screen. They're going to play everything bad you ever did. Which I think to myself, that's what heaven's going to be like? <laughs> that sounds really boring. And we're watching sinful movies? Really? Jesus could do that in this moment. He could say to this guy, you, you haven't lied. Well, let me show you this little clip from when you were 14 and confront him with his sinfulness, but he doesn't do that. In fact, some of you need a word from God today, and maybe you heard his word from Sunday, you're like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. And maybe he's such a rich guy, oh, it doesn't even apply to me. Maybe this is the word that God has for you today. Look at the next verse. God looked at him, Jesus looked at him, and the idea is it's a piercing stare. So have you ever had somebody before that looks at you and you're like, I feel like they're looking right through me. Like what's, they're just, it's like, this guy's caught and frozen. Mark's showing us there's a moment here. And then the next phrase, and loved him. Let me point out to you, this is while he's still an idolater. This is while he still loves his money more than he loves God. This is before any of that stuff happens. God loves him while he is a sinner. And God loves you before you clean up your act. He looks at him and he loves him. Now also let me say this. There's a lot of things that are done in the name of love in our culture that are not about loving the other person. They're about placating ourselves because of our own fear of what other people will think and we don't want to tell the truth even though we know the truth. And Jesus loves him too much to let him continue to lack one thing. And so he gives him some really tough teaching when he says, one thing you lack, and I imagine the guy's soul screaming out, yes, I do. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to accomplish. Tell me what's next. He says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then you'll be free. Then you can come follow me, because right now there's a barrier. See, what he says sounds, seems counterintuitive. One thing you lack, okay, what do I need to add? It implies what he says next, that he's got too much stuff. But one thing you lack... Go sell everything. But I thought I lacked something. You do. And this is a barrier between, don't hinder the kids, disciples. And he's telling the rich guy, you're hindered from following me and you're hindered by your riches. Go give them away. What is it that he lacks though? And maybe you notice this as you're you're looking at the passage already. You go back with what was said about the kids entering the kingdom of God. You look at verse 17, which really starts this encounter with the rich man. And then if you jump from verse 17, you read verse 30, which is the end. You see, the same thing's mentioned in verse 30 that's mentioned in verse 17. It's eternal life. So eternal life kind of frames this whole passage. It's what Bible scholars call an inclusio. So the beginning, it's at the end. Everything in between is then about that topic. It's like a picture frame or uh, an envelope or brackets on something saying, hey, this is, this is all about eternal life. And then in this passage, the idea of being saved, entering the kingdom of God, eternal life, they all mean the same thing. So what does that mean? Because I was just getting this message ready. I thought to myself, you're going to say it's, it's about eternal life, and then some people are going to check that and go, oh, yeah, I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer at Awana, whatever the thing is. I've been baptized. Eternal life is. And there's going to be hundreds of different views of what eternal life is because eternal life is one of those things. It's kind of Christianese. We just say it. We're real sloppy about what it means. It's church language. People who don't go to church are like, what? I don't come up with my own definition. So lots of people are going to think lots of things when I say eternal life. Some of you are going to think eternal life just means living forever. It's longevity. It's like quantity of life. Some people are going to get an image of a baby floating on a cloud with a diaper playing a harp. 
Like, that's eternal life. Some of you get an image of you're going to be in a heavenly choir, and some of you, that's going to be awesome, because like me, you can't sing now, so you must be able to sing there, right? And some of you are like, that's not what I want to do, but it's sure a lot better than the alternative. And eternal life is just not going to hell. What is eternal life? Wouldn't it be awesome if the Bible defined it for us? Like, not just me popping some slide up and says, here's what eternal life is, and I've made up some definition this week of eternal life. That doesn't do you any good. But what if Jesus defined it for us? Isn't that great? John chapter 17, verse 3, there's this verse where Jesus says, now this is eternal life. All right, now what he's about to say should define it for, forget all of your ideas about eternal life. What does Jesus say eternal life is? Now this is eternal life floating on a cloud in a baby diaper. That's not what this verse says. And it may not say what you think. Now this is eternal life that they, this is Jesus praying in John chapter 17. He's praying to his father. They may know you. That's eternal life. The only true God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's an allusion to Deuteronomy. And Jesus Christ, he prays, from, he prays about himself in the third person, your son, whom you sent. And the only way that happens is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's impossible for us. What is eternal life? It's to know God the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. But what does it mean to know him? Because a lot of times we think know and knowledge, and, and it requires knowledge. It requires knowing things. But there's some things to look at in that phrase of to know him. First of all is this, and this might be revolutionary for some of you. To know him, notice the verse in John 17, 3, didn't say that you will know him. It doesn't start at death. A lot of people think eternal life is once I die, then I have eternal life. No. Eternal life is, that's present tense to know him. It starts here. It starts now. And you do live forever, but it's not about quantity of life. It's about quality of life. To know him is actually an experiential knowledge. It's not knowledge like we oftentimes think about. It's not knowledge even like the Greeks thought of. It's, a, it's picking up on the Old Testament concept, the Hebrew concept of what knowledge is. And knowledge was experiential. You'll see it when you read Bible verses like in Genesis chapter 4. It says that Adam knew his wife and then she became pregnant. <laughs> Let me tell you what didn't happen there. Adam didn't learn a whole bunch of facts about his wife and then one day he's like, she's pregnant. It wasn't just head knowledge. It's a different sermon. We're not going to get into it today. But there was an experience that happened. The most intimate experience. What we're talking about when we talk about to know Jesus Christ, to know God the Father by the power of the Spirit, is an experiential knowledge of what? Well, what does the Bible say about eternal life? It gets mentioned all the time. For God so loved the world, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. This must be a big deal. That whoever believes in him, the son, would have eternal life. And then he talks about John chapter 10. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So it's not just about quantity of life, it's about a quality of life, abundant life. John chapter 14 and verse 6, there's only one way to have this life. I am the way, the truth, and the... We oftentimes forget this one because we keep talking about how he's the way. It's Jesus stating this, I am the life. He is the life. What's stopping you from experiencing life is actually stopping you from getting to Jesus because what the life is, it's... Fellowship with the Son. Now. It's relationship now that starts now and then lasts forever that is in a place other than hell. It's probably going to look a whole lot different than what a lot of us think, though. And it's not just about existing, and it's not just about abandoning you know, punishment and wrath, although that's included. 
It's about a relationship, a real experiential relationship that begins here, that begins the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and then continues on for eternity. But there are some people that have that that aren't experiencing that. I love what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Timothy is a pastor. He is a believer. He's leading a congregation of people. But he tells him 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight. Paul speaking to Timothy, older pastor to younger pastor. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life. Experience. You already have it. Show your possession of this to which you were called when? When he made his profession of faith. When you made your profession in the presence of many witnesses. Experience it yourself. Don't just tell other people about it, Timothy. And then it's really interesting, if you keep reading 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul, this older pastor, says to Timothy, this younger pastor, how do you lead the rich people in your congregation? And look what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. It's a subtle, sneaky sin. Nor to put their hope in wealth, they become secure. So you find your significance or your security in the wealth which is so uncertain, can be taken away so quickly. But put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's not wrong to be rich. Enjoy it. But don't put your hope in it. Don't become self-confident because of it. In verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share, willing to give it away. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves. Let's like it's talked about in our passage. Give away all your stuff. Sell it. Go give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And then look at the last phrase in the First Timothy passage. So they may take hold of the life that's truly life. Oh, that's what so many people that are wealthy is hindering them from actually experiencing eternal life. The one thing that they're lacking in their life is actually experiencing eternal life. And it's their money that's stopping them. And for many of them, they believe the money is what's actually going to deliver it. Oh, so sneaky. Such a barrier. So what you're saying then is the life that's lacking one thing must remove something so are you telling me I need to give away all my stuff? Well, what if, what if Jesus just opened to the possibility? What if he loved you enough today to look you in the eye and say, this is the thing that's stopping you from experiencing what I came to give you? Would you give it away? Maybe it's your car. Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's all of your, maybe it's your 401k. I don't know. Maybe it's your job. It's walking away from your job. Maybe it's a relationship. It's not healthy. I don't know what it is. But if you look at you, maybe it's the thing you wrote down on that paper. Then would you, are you willing to do it? So I don't have to, and here's the thing. And there's lots of rationalizations, lots of reasons, because this starts to get scary true. Like, we're really going to do this? And all kinds of reasons why you might say not to do this. I love that Jesus takes away the excuses from this guy. Did you notice what he says? He he doesn't say, take all that money you have and give it to our ministry, myself and these other 12 guys. He says, give it to the poor. Like, just go give it, find some guy on the side of the road who needs some money, just give him all your stuff, rich guy. I'm not as concerned about your stuff as I am about your heart, and you're lacking eternal life. I bet some of the disciples were like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, we take donations. Read Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. They actually, Jesus' ministry actually happened from the generosity of the followers. And our ministry at a church, it happens because you drop money in the boxes or give online. Here's the deal. Some of you may sit there and think to yourself, that guy's just trying to get my money. I don't care if you go give your house to some guy that's standing outside of 540. I don't want you to not have eternal life. I don't want you to not experience eternal life. If you, you know, it's like, man, I just bought this brand new whatever car, and I think God might be telling me to drop the keys in the offering plate. Good news for you, we don't have an offering plate. But maybe you can give it to Casa Providencia. 
Would you? Are you willing? I read a story this week of a guy who stood up and gave a testimony in front of his church, a really rich guy, and he was getting up and he was talking about his generosity. And he was talking about when he was a young guy and his first, he had his first job, he got his first paycheck, he was sitting in church, and he felt like this little small voice saying to him, give it, give it all. Sign the check, put it in the plate. And he did. He signed the check, he put it in the plate, and then he started to tell the story about how then God's blessed his life ever since that moment, financially blessed his life. He sat down from giving the testimony, and this old lady was sitting in the pew behind him, and she leaned in and goes, I dare you to do it again. <laughs> but I don't know if he would. Would you? If you're not willing to part with your stuff, then let me tell you something, your stuff has a grip on you. Are you willing? I bet this guy tithed. For some of you, just to tithe would be a step. Do you know why? Because your money has a grip on you. Or maybe you didn't know about it. Maybe you just weren't aware. Understand that for some people. But for some of us, we can't. We won't because we love our stuff. And it might be the very thing that's stopping us from having intimate fellowship with Jesus. And so if you think I'm scamming you, give it to Casa Providencia. If you think you didn't trust that guy up here with his cute little kids, then give it to some homeless dude. I don't care, but don't miss out on eternal life. Jesus says this teaching, it's incredibly hard. And disciples get it because they had a belief then that if you had a lot of money, that meant that God loved you more. And sometimes you hear people preaching that now. You don't know if God's blessing their life or if that money is a barrier in their life. You just don't know. And the disciples thought that that meant that God was blessing their life. And then Jesus, he ends up saying, look at the next verse. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying it's impossible. And the disciples are going, we're all in trouble. Look at the next verse. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Who can have eternal life? All right, we blast the disciples all the time. They don't get it. They're dull. They miss it. They get it right here. Nobody can. That's, it goes back to verses 13 through 16. The only way, if anyone wants to enter the kingdom of God, be saved, have eternal life. Must become like one of these little children. Powerless, independent. And for the rich people, it's really hard. It's impossible because they become self-confident, sneaky. They become dependent. How can you be powerless and totally dependent when you're dependent on something else for your security, for your significance? Jesus gives that, the, the one verse, it's so, it's interesting, uh, verse 25, the eye of the needle, the camel going through an eye of a needle verse. We talk about how we water this passage down, even pastors do it. Um, lots of things have been said about that passage. Uh, some people, you may have heard a pr- pastor preach one time before something that uh, there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, and the only way that the camel could get through it was to take all the bags off the camel, and the camel had to get down on its knees and climb through the gate, and I would just say one thing to you, why don't they go through a different gate? Why would you ever go through that gate? Because there's more than one gate in Jerusalem. And here's the reality. That gate doesn't exist in Jerusalem. Some people are trying to explain away the verse and say that it's really hard. The point's not that it's really hard. Just as simple as it can be. Think about how big a camel is, the largest animal in Palestine. There used to be, a, the other cultures, there's a saying, an elephant through the eye of a needle. But in their culture, the camel. And the eye of a needle. Did you take home ec? Can you see that? You can't see that? Neither can I. It's too small. It's not possible. That's the point. 
Some people say, oh, there's an Aramaic word that looks a lot like the word camel, and it actually means rope. Okay, whatever. Can you put a rope through the eye of a needle? No. Okay, then mess up the verse, and you still got it. It's impossible. You can't do it, and they, get it. they can't do it. But then it's the climactic verse is the next verse, and this is the point. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And the disciples, they've, if anybody's got this so far, it's them. Remember the first part of the book? No one can calm the storm. Jesus can. There's a demon-possessed guy. No one can even bind him. Jesus heals him. The guy comes through the ceiling. Jesus forgives his sins. Hey, only God can forgive sins. Yeah, so that you know that I'm God. Get up and walk. Jairus' daughter he falls at his knees. His daughter actually died. Oh, you don't even have to bother. Don't bother the teacher. He raises her from the dead. God does the impossible. He can even change our desires from loving money to loving him. And what happens in our lives is that when we have the one thing, we're willing to lose everything else. When we have that one thing, we're willing to lose everything else. See, the lives that lack the one thing are going to have to remove something. I don't know what that something is for you. Maybe, maybe it's money. Maybe it's not money for you. Maybe we're talking about that. You're like, I'm good. I got this Sunday. Yes. Maybe it's something else. It's whatever comes between you and God. It's your idol. It's the thing you trust. It's the thing you place your faith in that's hindering you from experiencing the one thing that Jesus wants to give you, which is not just when you die. It starts here and now, which is intimate fellowship with him. You get him. He is the life. But Peter, it clicks for him at this moment. He gets it right again. Verse 28, Peter said to him, we did that. What you called that guy to do that he wouldn't do, we did it. Verse 28, Peter said, we left everything to follow you. Now, it's really interesting if you look at Peter's life and you go through the Gospels, we know enough about Peter that we can go, well, you, did, you dropped your nets, you left the business, but you still own a house. I mean, whenever we see him in Capernaum, they're at Peter's house. And you still have a boat. Well, he's got a boat. He must have some cars too. No, he's a fisherman. They didn't have cars back then. Like, man, I thought Peter was loaded. He's got a boat, a house. But apparently he was willing to walk away from everything. Because Jesus doesn't rebuke him for saying that. But what Jesus says next, without any comment from me even, if we would, if we believed this, verses 29 through 31, it would change the way all of us live. Like we talk about our church exists to connect people to Jesus for life change. Just open-minded, what if we believe this passage? I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel, not just because, but for me and the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. This all is different than what we're used to hearing. This guy couldn't follow Jesus in this passage because he counted the cost and said it's too much. I don't want to, I can't give all my stuff. I I've got security. I've got significance. And I'm not sure I trust you, Jesus, more than I trust the security and significance this money is giving me. I know that I'm missing something, but this seems like a huge risk and a huge sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, no, there's actually no risk. There's actually no sacrifice if you believe me. Because isn't that what it actually comes down to? Because he promises here, get this investment strategy. Whatever you sacrifice here, whatever you give here, you 100 times return on your investment. 
Now, who here, if I said to you, hey, if you come give me $10 after the service, I'll give you 1000 Wouldn't do that. I'm not going to do that, just to be clear. But who wouldn't do that? If, if, if somebody said to you, hey, if you give me $10,000, I'll give you $10 million. And you're like, I don't have $10,000. You know what you'd probably do? If you believed him, and that's the key, if you believed him, you'd scramble to come up with $10,000. Sell your car. Get rid of something. Start sacrificing. Stop having, stop having heat. Like, you'd do what you had to do. And so here's how, oftentimes how we function as Christians. We ask questions like this. I get this as a pastor periodically. What do I have to give? Like, how much do I have to give? Do I, is it tithe really required in the New Testament? And do I have to tithe on the net or is it on the gross? Those are all bad questions. It shows you don't get this. If you really believe that Jesus rewarded a hundred times whatever you gave, not just in eternity, but in eternity and here, it'd be like, how much can I give? How do I figure this out so that I can sacrifice more during this 70-year time span that, for the sake of treasures that are going to last for billions and zillions forever years? The question is, do we, do we believe him? Do we buy it? And then there's also a little curveball in here. Did you see it? You leave family, and if you're willing to forsake homes and property, fields, and children, like all this stuff, for me and the gospel, and then he gives, and he goes back and he lists these things. He doesn't mention father, which is interesting, because we have a father, and that's what we get when we have eternal life. But then he says, sisters, children, fields, and with them persecution. I don't want a hundred times persecution. I'm good. That's a reward. That's what it's phrased as. Mark puts this there to shock us. Remember when we started, Mark, what these people are, Nero is putting dog skins, or putting animal skins on people and having dogs chase them through the streets to kill them because they're Christians. And what Jesus is saying here is, that's a reward. You get to know me more. Because I look at it, and there's a passage that I love. It's probably my favorite passage of the New Testament. I'm not there in it being true in my own life, but I, it's like I want this to be true. It's Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 10 and 11, I want to know Christ. No, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I'm all in for that. Victory over sin, victory, just Jesus showing his power off in my life. That's awesome. And the fellowship, and that's the word. That's why I pause. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Because fellowship means a shared experience. It's not cookies and milk afterwards out in the cafeteria. Fellowship is like guys who are veterans, they tell their stories about what it was like to serve, and I didn't serve. I, don't have fel- I can enjoy it. I can appreciate their sacrifice. I don't have fellowship in that, though. And that's how some of us are with Jesus. I like his stories. I appreciate what he's done for me. But are we, are we experiencing fellowship? He says, Paul's saying, and Paul even says, not that I've obtained all this after he says this first, but I press on. That's what I want. That's the goal. Because it helps us know Christ more. And so what, what does God speak to your heart through a passage like this? And, and maybe you grasp this, and maybe you're like, yeah, I want to, and, and maybe God's going to send you. Maybe it means mission field for you. Maybe a year from now, you'll be like the head's pass where you're, like, you're in here, and you're in this church, I never thought it, and God did something, he moved me, and now I'm living in somewhere else for the sake of the gospel. Not just like the United Way, not the Red Cross. Anybody that's for the sake of the gospel, and my name, that, it's going to be a hundred times reward. Some of you, maybe it'll be adoption. Maybe you'll adopt as a result of this. Some of you, maybe you become more generous with your finances. Some of you, it's going to tr- maybe it's you, you hand your life over to Jesus Christ and ask him to be your savior. I don't know what the application is. What's God speaking to your heart? What if he actually loves you enough to look you in the eye and say, hey, this is a hindrance. Deal with it. Are you going to be like my kids? Oh, no. Terrible. Or I actually trust you 
And what you're asking, I think it makes sense to me because I thought this was actually going to bring satisfaction. But okay, whatever you want to do. Are you more like the disciples or are you more like the rich guy? Let's pray. Father, I pray that no one who hears these words today would walk away sad like that guy in the passage. One of the saddest verses in all the Bible. And I pray, God, that you'd speak to our hearts, even in this moment, and tell us, what is it? why don't just walk away and, oh, that was nice, pretend like we did something for you. God, speak to our hearts and show us if there's something in us that is offensive to you, if there's something in us that's hindering us from experiencing the very thing that you died to give us. <laughs> you were rich and became, you didn't ask that guy in the passage to do anything you didn't do. You gave up your riches of heaven and became poverty. You became our sin on the cross so that we could know you. If there's somebody here who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that right now would be the moment of salvation. They would acknowledge their sin before you and they would ask your son Jesus to be their Savior. And Father, those here that know you, as they prayed a prayer, they really do have faith, they're struggling, there's something that's stopping them from having, taking hold of this eternal life like you talk about with Timothy. Reveal that to them. Maybe it's their willingness to share. Maybe it's some other thing. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's their desire for reputation. Whatever it is, God, will you speak to our hearts? Love us enough to point out what we lack and to show us how we can have it. In Jesus' name.